Hello, welcome to Alan and Avery's podcast. We are going to look ahead in 2023 on sanctions. And hopefully I'm going to get some of my panelists to make predictions about what we can expect to see for 2023. I'm Matt Townsend. I'm partner and global co-head of the sanctions practice. And just to very briefly introduce the uh, panelists for the podcast. First of all, I'm joined by my fellow head of sanctions practice based in New York, Ken Rivlin. Maura Resendez, sanctions partner based in Washington. Udo Ulgamala, partner based in Frankfurt. Jonathan Benson, counsel based in London. Tom Darden, senior associate also in London. And last but certainly not least, Thomas de Klerk, senior associate based in Brussels. Okay, let's start the discussion with perhaps the most obvious topic in terms of 23 and one which has dominated the headlines during 2022, and that's obviously Russia and the Ukraine crisis. If I can turn to Maura first, I think Maura, if it's possible to make predictions here, I mean, what can we expect next as regards the Russia sanctions program from the US administration, given the already extensive sanctions we saw over the last 12 months? Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, you know, I think a lot of us are scratching our heads and wondering, you know, where do we go next, given the, the massive escalation we saw during 2022. But look, there's still room to move, right? Certainly from the U.S. side, there's still sanctions that can be imposed. There's tightening of existing sanctions. There's further calibration that can be done with respect to the current landscape. So one thing to note about the U.S. approach to Russia sanctions is it's a highly complex program. There are many pieces of it, and all of them can be seen as levers, right, which can be moved up or down to accommodate the situation or react, more importantly, to the situation. And I think that's an important piece here is that global sanctions in reaction to Russia's actions in Ukraine have been exactly that, reactionary, right? It's we're reacting to what's happening on the ground. And as things continue to escalate, I think we'll see further reaction from the U.S. and its partners around the world. Thank you, Maura. Tom, can I just turn to you? It's really the same question from a UK-EU perspective. What would you expect to see over 23? Thank you, Matt. Yeah, I don't think you have to be Nostradamus to safely predict that Russia is going to continue to be targeted with, a, with some sanctions. But as Maura said, I think you're going to be a little bit harder pressed to say exactly what new sanctions are going to be introduced. I mean, I think that the two things that I'm thinking about for 2023, uh, the impacts of those sanctions on businesses that currently don't actually have any direct Russian links at all. And these are the EU's 3G iron and steel sanctions, and, and secondly, the oil and refined product sanctions. So very quickly on, on each, the 3G sanctions include a provision which is going to go live on the 30th of September 2023 which essentially says that EU persons can't import or purchase certain iron and steel products from any third country if such products themselves incorporate certain iron and steel products originating in Russia. And the sorts of products that are covered here are things like pipes, plates, sheets, sections, rods, tubes, railway materials, bars, wires, and that kind of stuff. So, so if you're an EU business that has no direct connections of any kind, and you're in the market for getting hold of these sorts of items from outside of the EU, you'll still have to be thinking about how your counterparty's goods have been made and where they've been sourced from, in particular, the raw materials that your, your counterparty's been using to make its own products. These sanctions, they're pretty novel, so it's going to be interesting to see how they impact upon supply chain diligence, and I think businesses should be looking at that now. The other sanctions I quickly flagged are the oil and refined product sanctions, which have been very much front and centre of the sanctions package, which have been put forward by not just the EU, but the, the whole of the G7. And things we know 
will happen in 2023 at the expiry of the the time limited derogation for one off imports into the EU of refined products on the 5th of February 2023 and on the same day the coming into full force and effect of the so-called price cap mechanism for the same products. By way of reminder that the price cap mechanism is linked to the G7's targeting of the maritime transport of Russian crude and refined products between Russia and third countries, e.g. China. In high level terms, the sanctions restrict the provision of the maritime transport for the targeted products as well as financing and brokering services linked to the same, but only if the products in question are being supplied above a relevant price cap. The caps are expected to fluctuate through 2023. And as of late January, it's been announced that they're next going to be reviewed in March. So discussions around this topic and whether the cap should be set are already understood to be pretty heated. But for our clients, we expect that the sanctions are going to give rise to considerable issues as they seek to put in place attestations, again, through their supply chains to demonstrate that the underlying oil and or refined products, as the case may be, are in fact compliant with that price cap. Thanks, Tom. Obviously, some way to go, I think, on that. One question we get asked an awful lot, and it still comes up, actually, I'll direct this question to Moira, if I may, is should we now be classifying Russia as a so-called comprehensively sanctioned country? And if so, does it really matter? Yeah, thanks, Matt. So look, um, our answer to that question right now is no, right? We don't think that Russia is yet considered a comprehensively sanctioned country from the U.S. perspective, like Iran or like Cuba. In fact, I've been saying for years, I think those types of programs were unlikely to see on a going forward basis, although I might have to reevaluate that statement given current events, because like the, my earlier comment around you know, escalation from the U.S. side, that is an obvious choice, right, that the U.S. could use to really escalate the impact of sanctions targeting Russia. And it would make a difference, Matt, right? Because the key to comprehensive sanctions programs or sort of the hallmark of that kind of program is that virtually all activity for U.S. persons or with a U.S. nexus with Russia or any person in Russia would be prohibited. And it's not just forward-looking, right? It would operate to extinguish all existing business that has any U.S. nexus absent some authorization. And that is also another piece of this program. Right now, there are almost 60 general licenses in existence in the U.S.-Russia sanctions program, all of which operate to calibrate the impact, right, of those sanctions. Some of them may may survive a change to a comprehensive sanctions program. Some of them won't. They'll all need to be tweaked and looked at and whether they would continue to operate in the intended way if there were that kind of change. So I do think it would be a sea change in the sanctions landscape, and we'll have to see what's to come this year on that front. Okay, thanks, Maura. So interesting times, clearly, and we still, I think, expect the summary of that being uh, Russia will still remain front and center for many governments and businesses in the year ahead. So let me turn to Jonathan and away a little bit from Russia. I think it's fair to say we've seen an uptick, Jonathan, in clients starting to raise questions about, well, what's next? We have seen an unprecedented wave of sanctions targeting Russia. What jurisdictions could come next if we see geopolitical relations deteriorate in a similar way? 
China comes up a fair amount in that discussion. So could 2023 be the year of sanctions targeting China, Jonathan? Well, Matt, I think it's first worth saying that China is already targeted by a very discreet set of sanctions by a number of jurisdictions, including the EU, the UK and the US. But putting those sanctions to one side, really the question is is one for an expert in international relations rather than a lawyer. But I think I can still make uh, some uh, hopefully useful and pertinent observations. The first of which, of course, is that China is a key trading partner for the US, EU and the UK, and of course, is also the world's second largest economy. Now, we're at a really interesting point in terms of Chinese domestic affairs with the country opening up very quickly from its COVID slumber. And so many Western companies are extremely keen to serve that country's pent up demand. And of course, China is also an absolutely key interlocutor on issues such as climate change. So for all those reasons, clearly, it would take something really quite dramatic for there to be anything other than an incremental move in terms of Western sanctions on China. But as part of a broader move, really, to reassess supply chains in the light of COVID and other factors, we are seeing Western clients considering how a Russia-like package of sanctions on China would impact on their business. And of course, in many cases, that impact would be severe and swift. Clients, of course, are particularly mindful of the speed with which um, sanctions were imposed on Russia in a coordinated fashion by many jurisdictions across the, the Western world. Slightly separately, but I think relatedly, clients in high-tech industries in the UK and EU are very closely watching for a potential expansion in export controls on the transfer of sensitive technologies to China in light of the extension of US export controls targeting China's advanced commuting and semiconductor sectors last autumn. The focus of the discussion in the EU is, is currently around Dutch export controls on advanced chip technologies. But due to the complex pan-European supply chains in the semiconductor industry, as well as the difficult politics around the introduction of any further sanctions on China, I'm confident that other member states will uh, be seeking to influence the outcome of that dialogue between the Dutch government and, and the US government. Chinese clients, of course, are also very much alive to these fluctuations in thinking and the potential impact upon them of the introduction of any further Western sanctions. And we have seen a number of Chinese clients looking to mitigate against sanctions risks in their contract. Just a final quick observation. Of course, in relation to China, as with many other countries, sanctions are just one piece of the picture. And the EU and UK are responding to China's assertiveness in multiple ways. To draw just a few out, we think that foreign direct investment controls and national security related screening regimes will continue to be actively utilised or expanded this year. Certainly in the UK, and we have a forthcoming foreign influence registration scheme, which looks to be firmly targeted at China. And in Brussels, we're seeing the final stages of negotiations around a new so-called anti-coercion instrument. So look, I think there's a lot of scope here for movement, and it's going to be a very interesting year ahead. Thanks, Jonathan. I think that's absolutely right. Just want to turn now to Ken and Uday and bring them into the conversation. 
So maybe start with Ken, if I may. First of all, Ken, what uh, countries are on your list for 2023, just to keep an eye on and where we may see some expansion or indeed retraction of sanctions? Thanks, Matt. I think to answer that question, we need to think about the broad themes, and there are five, two of which we've touched on, which is Russia and the war in Ukraine and China and the focus on tech. But three other key areas are corruption and human rights, cryptocurrencies, and supply chains, which is an issue that Jonathan referenced. And these manifest during this past year in a raft of sanctions that not just to Russia, but a range of other countries, the Balkans, Belarus, Liberia, Guatemala, Guinea, Mali, Philippines, Ethiopia, Haiti. So that's what happened this year, but I see that continuing in part because the Biden administration is very focused on corruption and human rights issues. And that drives the imposition of sanctions throughout the world. And there, there are a range of issues that the Biden administration is looking at and concerned about. And we'll get to cooperation later in this conversation. I see that continuing. Venezuela had been a focus and is now less so given developments over the last six months in that country. Myanmar continues to be a focus with its increasing isolation from the rest of the world. And so really, I'd focus on those points. And, and the last thing I would, I would draw to in terms of predictions is that the China sanctions or China focus that uh, Jonathan just mentioned is, is really more, even though there's a human rights element to it, it's really more about export controls and, and what the U.S. has been focusing on at the highest level, kind of the most sophisticated area of chips and semiconductors is to make it difficult for non-U.S. companies to ship certain products when they've been produced using U.S. hardware or software without a license. While that will impact, as expected and intended to impact activities in China, the actual impact on the economy there and, and in the U.S. is expected to be muted. Thanks, Ken. Uday, what about the EU position? What's your sense as to countries to keep an eye on? My very personal view, of course, only, and trying to look into the crystal ball, that I would list three countries at the top sanctions targets in 2023. This is Russia, for obvious reasons, and I fully agree with what Mora pointed to earlier. There are still a lot of sanctions in place. Most of them enacted more recently. However, there's still room for more sanctions for recalibration. And I think we will see further amendments in the EU's sanctions against Russia in the next year. The second candidate on my list is then Belarus. It's not fully clear at all to which extent they really support the Russians' aggression against Ukraine, but it seems to be clear that they are supporting them, that they are under pressure from Russia probably as well. So depending how things will continue to develop in the Ukraine and uh, depending on the role that Belarus will actually play in this conflict, I would expect that we see a further tightening of the sanctions against that country. The third country on my list is then North Korea. I understand that North Korea is already subject to basically comprehensive sanctions. However, the EU in particular, but also the UK and the US authorities, they proved to be very creative in developing new instruments and new sanctions. And depending on how North Korea will continue playing or developing its nuclear program, I would expect that North Korea is another hot candidate for further sanctions. 
As regards China, most of the things that I would like to say have already been said. Perhaps adding the specific German perspective on China would mean that we should consider that the German economy is highly depending on a good relationship with China, that I would guess that Germany is at least not pushing for more sanctions, rather reluctant to support further sanctions. So I would expect that the EU at least will not be that legal entity that will push for harder sanctions against China. Of course, all subject to the question how China will continue to deal with Taiwan. And last but not least on Iran, I think we are going to talk about that in an hour separately. So, Well, Anude, thanks very much. I do want to ask folk actually about Iran, but it's going to be a super quick answer if you, if you can. So Udo, just in one line, what are the prospects of the Iran nuclear deal being revived and Iran suddenly reopening in the way that we saw 2016, 2017? I would say the chances are rather low due to the political situation in Iran and the willingness of the EU to sanction Iran in order to protect the protesters in the country. The human rights aspect and the motivation to sanction this country due to violations of human rights will make it very difficult to reach an agreement on the nuclear program. So I would say the situation is rather stable than progressing. And there is a brilliant example of the German understatement, I think it's fair to say. Maura, can I ask you the same question, just in one line? And then I also want to talk to you a little, just very briefly on what we're seeing in the lending markets. But on on Iran, any suggestion from Biden, amongst others, of the Iran deal being reheated? Thanks, Matt. I think the Biden administration was minded to try to re-engage on the Iran deal after the Trump administration exited in 2018. However, I think I agree with Udo that the political landscape has changed so dramatically in the last few years. Uh, the prospects are very low and all public reporting is corroborating that point. Support for Russia, human rights abuses, and then Iran's own furthering demands in the context of what's left of the discussions makes that prospect highly unlikely in my view. So just a super quick one before we move on to talk briefly about enforcement. Maura, from your perspective, given all we've talked about, about Russia and other countries where we may start to see some further action in 2023, are we seeing a kind of era and expect it to continue an era of great caution amongst lenders and investors? Are we, for instance, seeing changes in market practice on lending covenants and reps and in finance documents? Or again, is that a pretty stable picture at the moment? Thanks, Matt. There is a very high degree of caution we're seeing by market participants, and most notably and impactful by banks. The culture of overcompliance is at an all-time high, characteristic of a complex, nuanced program like Russia, where compliance is really difficult. And it's both complicated from the U.S. perspective. The landscape is really nuanced but also from the multilateral complexity standpoint, right? While there's a high degree of coordination between the U.S. and its allies around the world, it's not precisely aligned. And that causes parties to have some angst about whether it can completely comply with all of the various regimes that it may be subject to. And frankly, it's just often not worth it, right? The time and resources to figure out whether you can comply 
are just not worth it to many market participants. And so it's easier to just say no or take a very cautious approach, which almost always leads to a no in many circumstances. One note to make here is that we have seen quite a lot of financial institutions taking really the most cautious approach, which is not just refusing to participate in a transaction or support a transaction or in the U.S. parlance, reject the transaction, but rather we're seeing a high instance of financial institutions that are blocking transactions that are actually on their face, not otherwise prohibited. Maybe perhaps they're authorized pursuant to a general license or the activity is itself just not prohibited in the first place. But this culture of overcompliance is leading financial institutions to block those funds and then turn to their counterparties and say, you know, we're not going to unblock the funds unless OFAC tells us we can. And so that requires uh, application to OFAC for that unblocking. And it's really causing a logger jam in the market. Lots of market participants looking for relief from OFAC in those circumstances. So I do expect we'll continue to see quite a lot of overcompliance in the market in 2023 and perhaps going forward beyond there. Okay, thanks, Maura. So just let's change focus a little bit. I think it's fair to say in 2022, we saw a much greater degree of collaboration, particularly between the US, EU and UK, as regards sanctions programs. Thomas, can we, in your view, expect to see continued alignment between those three countries' trading blocks, as it were, whether it's on Russia or other jurisdictions? Absolutely, Matt. I think the EU officials have clearly embraced the lesson of collaboration, not just on Russia, but also on other sanctions programs. So I expect the EU to continue to align within the G7, including with the UK and the US, not just on the adoption of new sanctions, but also on the implementation of existing programs. And I think a good example here is that the EU now has a sanctions special envoy who's taking office right at the time of recording of this podcast. And this is going to be a diplomat. And I mean, a big part of this is symbolism, right? But it's also, it also means something. A direction is very clear. That diplomat's task will be precisely to work together with those third countries to work on implementation, to avoid the evasion and circumvention of sanctions globally. Okay, well, that, that, that is interesting. And Ken, do you have some observations on that? Yeah, I do. Thanks, Matt. So as we know, looking at the sanctions environment for the last decade plus, there were periods when the U.S. and other allies were more or less coordinated. We we're really at the highest level of coordination now. In fact, you know, following on Thomas's comment, in 2022, the U.S. and the U.K. issued a joint statement on cooperation that explicitly talks about coordination across a range of programs. And the U.S. has made it a priority to wherever possible to be coordinating sanctions with allies, to sharing intelligence, and to engaging with stakeholders. So. I see that continuing, but I will say there is one potential headwind, and that is that, you know, while the U.S. had originally been the main source of sanctions, along with the U.N., the U.K., and the E.U., now a number of other countries are getting into the act. Canada, Switzerland, France, Australia are imposing sanctions. And so companies looking to navigate the international environment really need to be understanding the details of these sanctions, which are not going to be identical. And in, in many cases, though, particular sanctions programs will be broader or, or narrower. And then the last point I'd make here is that we are also seeing reactionary sanctions coming out of China, Russia, and elsewhere. So there's the potential, increased potential for conflict depending on the 
geographic reach of a particular company or financial institution's activities. Thanks. Um, so, Jonathan, j- just on this point about coordination, there's been a bit of discussion at G7 level. The EU, I think, has made some comments in this regard, and I think Canada has been at the forefront of it, around the proposition of using frozen funds, basically, where you've got asset freeze restrictions imposed through the sanctions regimes, to then deploy those funds in some way towards the rebuild of the Ukraine. Are we seeing, in addition to Canada, are we seeing other leading Western nations follow that? And super briefly, how complex or otherwise is that kind of mechanism? Yeah, so this is a really interesting example of how the very sad situation in Ukraine has given rise to some very interesting and innovative thinking in relation to sanctions. Because the World Bank has estimated that the cost of reconstruction and recovery in Ukraine will be in excess of 349 billion US dollars, so a very substantial amount of money indeed. Canada's obviously been at the forefront of of efforts here, but the US has already followed Canada's lead, as in the Appropriations Act of this year, an authority was introduced for the US Attorney General to transfer the funds and assets of blocked persons for use in providing assistance to Ukraine. So uh, the US is already in on the act. I think for the UK and the EU, the position is a little more complicated and difficult, but undoubtedly, um, you know, discussions are underway in both of those jurisdictions around uh, what um, what can be done in that regard. And uh, the complexities, just to very quickly uh, draw up a few, um, in uh, the UK and uh, EU, there are um, strong constitutional principles um, around the protection of private property, uh, which will have to be worked around. Considerable issues around due process, issues around sovereign immunity, uh, to the extent that Russia's state assets are involved. There's the risk of bi- bilateral investment treaty claims being brought. And of course, there is the overriding risk for any jurisdiction that engages in this sort of confiscation or use of funds that Russia might adopt. Uh, so one thing that I've been reading about very recently is that other options um, may well be explored by the EU um, and potentially the UK as well, such as the pooling of assets together in order to generate returns. And then those returns, rather than the underlying assets themselves, are used to finance the reconstruction of Ukraine. And that might pose a uh, somewhat easier way forward. Okay, very, very interesting uh, proposals. Um, okay, the final thing that I want to touch on today is around enforcement and what we can expect to see in 2023. And if I can turn again to Thomas, from an EU perspective, you talked a little bit about greater coordination and so forth. What are we hearing in terms of the enforcement across the EU bloc and also proposals for an enhancement of penalty regimes? Thank you, Matt. Yeah, I think. As we discussed, the EU has, has gained more of a confident posture in sanctions uh, in the wake of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that more confident posture also extends to enforcement now. And I think looking ahead in the year to come, there's three changes to look out for. And I would say that each of them is going to be significant in light of the serious challenge for any business to now comply with the myriad of sanctions that is out there today. The first one is that sanctions are now recognized as an EU crime. And that means that penalties are going to be harmonized across Europe and a more comprehensive approach to regulatory and criminal enforcement will follow. Two, whistleblowing protection in the EU will also be extended to sanctions. And that means that breaches are less likely uh, to go unnoticed. 
And then third, but certainly not least, while enforcement today is still within the remit of national member states, we're increasingly seeing and hearing calls to elevate that enforcement to the European level. And so at the European level, we now have a European prosecutor's office. They took office last year, and we're hearing calls, including by France and Germany, to have that European prosecutor also to be uh, competent to work on sanctions violations. And just in the week of the recording of this podcast, the European Commission has publicly stated that they're assessing adoption. And that I think if this happens in the European prosecutor's office, uh, does get competence to prosecute EU sanctions violations, I think that could be a real game changer for enforcement in Europe. Thanks, Thomas. What about the US? Uh, Moira, what can we expect to see in the coming 12 months on enforcement? Thanks, Matt. Yeah, enforcement's a key piece to the effectiveness of any sanctions program, right? Because sanctions programs really are designed to be deterrence, right, to to, to, to her future behavior. And in that regard, I think, again, turning back to Russia as a good example, while enforcement activities tends to lag behind just because it takes time to build cases and things, you know, the imposition of new programs or rolling out or expansion of programs, I do expect that the U.S. will look for an opportunity to strike early with respect to Russia enforcement. So keep an eye out for that in 2023. The second thing to note from a U.S. enforcement perspective is that U.S. criminal authorities, while they have always had authority to pursue uh, sanctions violations, have been making quite a bit of noise in the press about their intention to really re-up their efforts with respect to sanctions enforcement. So I expect we'll see a more activity on the criminal enforcement side. And then the third piece to keep an eye out for from the U.S. side is secondary sanctions, right? The imposition of secondary sanctions. The U.S. had been out towards the end of 2022 saying that they intended to use their secondary sanctions authorities as broadly as possible to deter sanctions evaders and those who are assisting sanctions targets. And so I think we'll continue to see a lot of activity on that front for 2023 as well. Thanks, Matt. You know, there's been quite a lot of speculation about European courts being used for claims being brought by oligarchs, amongst others, as regards their listings under the relevant sanctions programs. Can we expect to see more activity in that space? Or is that just very much kind of flash in the pan for the for the time being? No, I fully agree. Uh, this is simply due to the fact that the imposition of sanctions is within the competence of the European Union, and therefore the European courts are also competent to review these sanctions to a large extent. And I think the, the, the involvement of these courts is an almost compelling development, considering that we see more and more sanctions on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have to acknowledge, and we are proud to be there, that the EU is, of course, subjected to the rule of law and that judicial review of sanctions is a matter of course. So, therefore, I'm pretty convinced that we will see more rulings in that area helping us also to interpret the sanctions and therefore to provide for more legal certainty. Let me give you two examples. The first example for um, is a decision uh, ruled in July 2022, which is dealing with television station in France, a subsidiary of Russia Today, where the courts assessed very carefully whether the restrictions imposed by Regulation 833 are lawful. And in the end, 
they concluded uh, that they were lawful. Another example is a ruling from October 22. This one dealt with a listed person, with a Russian citizen who complained about being listed and having become an asset freeze target. And the European court said that this listing was unlawful. So there are cases in which sanctions targets may have success with their claims in Europe. This may trigger some interesting follow-up questions. For example, in case someone becomes delisted, but she was listed for a certain period in time, what happens with the business relationships? What happens with the business partners? Can they continue to rely on the no claims clause under the sanction regulation? I would say, yes, they will be protected, but let's see what the new year holds. Another point may be whether these individuals or entities may claim damages against the EU based on the allegation of an unlawful listing. This has not yet been decided and it will be a quite interesting discussion to be monitored. Uday, thank you. And I think just to kind of sum up on enforcement, similar themes, I think, for the UK as well, where we are anticipating and seeing a, a steady uptick in enforcement across the board. So I think we are out of time. Thank you very much to the panelists for your insights and contributions. It's always difficult, if not impossible, to start making predictions on what lies ahead with sanctions. But I think you all made valiant efforts. So thanks for your insights. And to sum up, if I may, obviously Russia will remain in the spotlight. We don't see that changing anytime soon during 2023. But keep your eyes out on other jurisdictions. We now have a very clear playbook when we start to see geopolitics deteriorate in a significant way. So we talked a little bit about China, Taiwan, Venezuela, Cuba, amongst others. Continued coordination and cooperation between leading nations on the sanctions program and the spread of, I think, jurisdictions adopting and deploying sanctions, I think will also continue. And I think we've also heard from the panelists about increased efforts to bring enforcement in a more focused way, to perhaps enhance penalties, to improve the deterrence, and to generally enhance the effective deployment of sanctions regimes, which, which in many senses is no great, no great surprise at all. So thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact any of us that you've heard from today. We'd be delighted to discuss further or any of your usual A&O contacts. But thanks very much for listening.